Dear God, as we come to you in your words tonight, uh, we pray for uh, your spirit to move and to speak to us and to reveal Jesus more clearly to us. Uh, convict us where we need convicting and comfort us where we need comforting. Uh, but uh, most of all, speak to us, reveal yourself, Lord, change us by your word. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, I believe I left my Bible over there, so I'm going to get that, but we'll keep talking. That's okay. Um, so when you do campus ministry for a while, like Scott and I do, found it, uh, when you do college ministry for a while, it's been over a decade for both of us, you do a fair amount of weddings for people uh, because the people that you minister to are right in that kind of age group where, where you know, sometime after they'll probably be getting married and those kinds of things. And so uh, Scott and I have both done our fair share of weddings over the years, a lot of them with students we really love and have connection to. Uh, one of the most memorable ones, though, that I have done happened about four or five years ago. Uh, it was for a couple named Chase and Jenny Cothran. They actually still go to church. Chase uh, helps play guitar on, for worship on Sundays here at Sunnybrook. Those of you guys who are here for that. Uh, but they, they were a couple that we were connected to and close to. But it wasn't because of my closeness to them that uh, I remember this wedding so well. Uh, it was because of my kids that I remember this wedding uh, really well. Uh, Chase and Jenny did this really cool thing where they actually provided childcare for people with small children, which is good. We had a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and a three-year-old at the time. And, uh, and so childcare was a really big deal. It is hard for even two parents to keep seven and five and three-year-olds quiet and still during an entire wedding ceremony. But since I was up on the platform doing the wedding, that means it's just on my wife to take care of all that. So to have childcare was this really great uh, blessing and a really great thing for us during that time. They did not have childcare for the reception, however. Uh, and, and so we took the kids with us to the reception. It was at a different place. It was actually over at the airport hangar. And, and our family was not there very long, maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Uh, but believe me when I tell you that the Moss family left their mark on that wedding reception on that night. Uh, when we left, like everybody knew who the Mosses were. Uh, by the time we left that reception. Uh, it started with us all kind of mingling around in there while we were waiting for the bride and groom to show up. And we're just kind of hanging out, out on the dance floor and just talking and all these things. And then all of a sudden the announcement comes on by the DJ. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome me in, uh, in kind of inviting and in, welcoming for the second time, Mr. and Mrs. Chase Cothran. And everybody claps and applauds as they come in. And then he announces, uh, we'd like you to please clear the dance floor as the couple come out to share their first dance together. And so people start to back up. And, and then he comes on to the mic again and he says, ladies and gentlemen, if you would, please clear the dance floor for the couple to share in their first dance I repeat, please clear the dance floor. And I'm like, what is going on? As I'm looking around, everyone's sitting around the edge. We're all outside. Why is this guy saying this over and over again? And then I kind of peek over somebody's shoulder to see my three-year-old, Hadley, uh, who kind of loves attention a little bit, 
who's just like basking in the spotlight of being the only one left on the dance floor for everybody to like check out and see and all eyes are on her and she's loving this so I've got to like run out there and scoop her up and I'm sorry I'm sorry you know and then they can start the music and and they do the dance and it's fun and and then we go and it's time to eat and they've got kind of buffet style food and so you're going through the line and you make your way to the table and Hudson my five-year-old at the time comes to the drink section and the drink section, they had this iced tea and kind of the fancy glass things where you, you have to twist it to make it work and un, or yeah, untwist it and then twist it back to like stop it. And uh, Hudson figured out the first part of that, the untwisted to make it flow, but not the second part of that. And so he untwists the thing and, and iced tea starts filling up his cup and then he doesn't know how to stop it. He's just kind of hitting it as he watches it fill up to the top and then it starts spilling over his cup onto the table, and so he panics, and he just moves his cup, and so now it's just spilling out onto the table, and then it starts to just waterfall off the table onto the ground, and somebody, it might have actually been Scott, catches this and reaches over and stops, gets it all cleaned up and everything, like, okay, made it through that, and we go sit down at the table, and I'm pretty sure this one wasn't our fault, Uh, but when we sat down there, Hudson happened to bump the table as he was sitting, and the legs on the other side of the table just completely collapsed and gave way. And stuff just started just spilling everywhere. It was like a Mexican theme, okay? So enchiladas and salsa are going everywhere. Glass is breaking. Silverware is clanging on the floor. All eyes are on us in the middle of the room. And so we're sorry, we're sorry. We're trying to pick and clean everything up. And we get that put together and we're finally done. And and then towards the end of our time there, I'm going and I'm looking uh, for Chase and Jenny. You know, one of the things you have to do as the minister is you have to get them to sign the marriage certificate, which is always hard at a reception because all these people are greeting them and they're wandering around, so I'm kind of chasing them around. And while I'm gone, my wife was talking to someone, and she's in the middle of this conversation when uh, finally this, or this lady comes up to her and says, uh, excuse me, is that your daughter over there? And uh, Amy looks up to see Hadley and the three-year-old in the middle of the dance floor kind of doing this and yelling, I've got to go potty in the middle of the thing. And so Amy scrambles, runs and rushes and then runs and finds a bathroom, gets her there, gets her to the toilet about three seconds too late. And so now there's a mess all over the bathroom. Amy gets that all cleaned up and we decide it's probably time for the Moss family to go home. And we pack up everybody and leave. And as I said, everyone on that night knew who the Mosses were. We left our mark uh, at that reception. And I'd like to say, man, they caught us on an off night. It was just a little bit crazy. It's not normally like that. But no, actually, if you would have been paying attention to our family at that wedding, you would have seen a pretty good glimpse into the life of the Mosses at that age and stage of life. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking uh, about this wedding that Jesus goes to in Cana, as Alex said, John chapter 2, if you go there. And, and just like us at that wedding uh, several years ago, if you pay attention, if you watch Jesus and what he's doing, you will get a glimpse of who he is. He will leave his mark on this wedding. But also, you'll get a fairly good glimpse into the kind of person he is and what he's about. So uh, you can go there. I'll get opened up there myself. John chapter 2, starting in the first three verses. Before we jump into that, let me give you a little bit of a context. What John is doing 
In John chapter 2, 3, and 4, he's going to tell us four different stories about Jesus. And all four of these, he's going to do a similar pattern. And he's going to take um, an element that would have been important in Jewish culture at that time, important for the culture that Jesus was in. And what Jesus is going to do in that moment, he's going to use that element and then kind of turn it on its end a little bit as an illustration for him and his ministry and his work. So he's going to take this very important thing and then he's going to use that as um, an object lesson for who he is. First, it will be a wedding, then it will be the temple then it will be a religious teacher, and then it will be a well. And we'll see these in in action. We're not covering the temple story, but we'll go to the third and the fourth story. But that's what's going on in each of these. And so the idea is to pay attention for how he's using these symbols and signs to speak truth about himself. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Um, So John says on the third day, just so you know, he's counting from uh, our last story when Jesus met Nathanael. So he's saying three days later, um, actually by the Jewish calendar it would have been two days later. They count every part of the day as a day. So about two days later, Jesus is uh, at this wedding in Cana. And it is always interesting to me actually to, to think about Jesus at a wedding party. It can be easy if we're not careful for Jesus to become one-dimensional and to be just this kind of very serious, somber figure who walked around uh, just kind of teaching truths and moral things and preaching about God and, and, and to forget that he was also someone who attended weddings and laughed and probably danced at weddings and those kinds of things. I always like to kind of have that picture in my mind. But a wedding was really important back in first century Palestine. Uh, because weddings were not primarily just symbols of love between two people. It was not just about, at least it was about the couple, but it wasn't just about the couple. It was about the community. Because when two people get married in a small village like this, in a communal society, what happens is the village itself gets stronger. Bonds are being made between families. There's going to be um, children that are born and our town is going to grow. There will be more people to work and sell and do kinds of things. This is good for us when these are happening. And so they would become these like village-wide events where the entire community would come together to celebrate. And they were a big deal. They would often last up to a week where every evening people came back out and celebrated and partied and and they would have food and feasting and all of these things. So it was really, really important. But when celebrations last a week, that means a lot of food and it means a lot of drink. And in this particular situation, partway through the celebrations, they run out of wine. Now, we don't have, we don't have anything quite like this in our uh, culture today. Uh, but in a culture that was huge and high on hospitality, the ability to be able to welcome and provide and care for people into your home, into your banquet, into your party, and in a culture that was a very big honor-shame culture, this was a social faux pas that, that, like I said, really goes beyond anything we have. It would have brought a huge amount of shame to the family to have not had enough 
for their guests, something that probably would have been talked about and whispered about in the village for some time, for maybe years to come even. So this is a really big deal. Uh, Somehow, Jesus' mother, Mary, catches wind of this. I don't know if she's family friends or what, but she catches wind of this, and she goes and tells Jesus this problem. They're out of wine. We don't know exactly what she expects him to do in this moment, but she thinks that he can maybe do something. And so she says this to him, and and then uh, Jesus gives this pretty odd response. He says this, What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. So it is an odd response, and it's odd for two reasons. Those of you guys who were here on uh, a couple weeks ago when Jim preached on this may remember a little bit, but the first is his term for his mom when he calls her woman. Now, that that sounds a little bit more harsh to us. In English, that sounds more harsh. This is a term, actually, that he's using uh, that's not necessarily demeaning or rude. It's it's basically the equivalent of ma'am. Actually, in a couple weeks, when Jesus meets uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, he's going to use this same term for her, ma'am. And so it's it's not rude, but it is still strange, because you don't call your mom ma'am. But Jesus does that. And what he appears to be doing here is is showing to his mom, declaring to her that there is a decisive shift in their relationship taking place, Uh, that he is now on mission. He is now entering into the ministry phase of his life, and so his priorities are not shaped by his earthly family's priorities. It's not pleasing them. It's not doing what they want. That's not his main goal. He is there to please his heavenly father. So he's about different things than they will be about sometime. But the second thing that makes this statement weird is this this other part of the phrase where he says, my hour has not yet come. What does he mean by that? little Bible study tip for you, okay? We talk about this, that on Thursday nights, we don't want to just study the Bible for you that we want to do that and with you. We, we also want to teach you to study the Bible for yourself. So, so here's something that can be helpful when you study the Bible. If you ever come across a term, a phrase, something that doesn't quite make sense to you, sometimes something really helpful that you can do is go to uh, an online concordance, something like BibleGateway.com. You may be familiar with that. BibleGateway.com. And type in that word or that term into, uh, into the search bar there. So type in the word hour. And it'll show you everywhere in the Bible where that word comes up. You can also go down and search by author. So you can go see every time in the book of John that this term is used. And that can be helpful when you're trying to get your, eye, uh, your mind around what, what an author means. Look at the way that they use this term over and over again in their scriptures. And, and so if you were to do that in the Gospel of John, search hour on Bible Gateway, you would see a number of verses come up, some of them that would look like this. Do we got these? There we go. These are the way the word hour gets used. Uh, one time a mob is there and they're getting angry with Jesus at what, they're, at what he's saying. And so it says, then they tried to seize him. Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So they want to try to attack him. They want to try and kill him, but they cannot kill him because his hour had not yet come. Or in John 12, as Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, he's in the last week of his ministry, and he senses the the, the end coming, the crucifixion and his death. And at that moment, he says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. 
Or on the very last night before Jesus dies, he's in a room with his disciples, and it says this, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And if you read through John, what you see is whenever this idea of Jesus' hour, my hour, his hour is used, John is always using that, Jesus is using that in reference to his death, in reference to when he will die and rise again and then ascend to the Father. And that makes Jesus' phrase really strange here. Because essentially, Jesus' mom comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus' response is, why are you telling me this, ma'am? I'm not ready to die. <laughs> Whoa, like that's, that's intense, Jesus. And a little bit off topic, man, okay? Well, you got to make this about yourself. Uh, so it gets a little bit weird when he says those things. But this is a hint to us that what Jesus is about to do is about more than just wine. What he's about to do is more significant than just help a wedding celebration out. There's another hint that we're given, though, in verse 6. Look at what it says. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Okay, here's another little tip. Anytime you're studying the Bible, it's good to ask this question. Why did the author think that we need to know that? Okay, this is, this is a good question to ask for like a story at large. So why did John think that we need to know the story of Jesus at this wedding? Like Jesus did a ton of things. There are thousands of stories that he could tell, but he specifically said, no, this one's got to go in the book. So why did he decide that we need to hear that? What, he's, what is he trying to tell us about Jesus? So you can ask that big picture. You can also ask that small picture about some of the details. Why did John think it was significant to tell us that these jars are for Jewish purification? Now, you can get too into that question, and you can ask every little detail. Why did he think he needed to tell us they were six jars? Probably because they were six jars, okay? Um, so you could chase rabbit trails if you get careful, but if you don't get caref too careful. But it's important to just wonder that. Why does John think this is significant for us to know these things here? So he tells us these are used for Jewish purification. What he's describing is these uh, stone vessels, clay vessels, were easier to get contaminated. And so water that was used for purification rituals was kept in stone jars, which is what they were. And they were more, more than likely these jars were used for the water that was for ritual hand washing and maybe some type of ritual bathing that the Jewish people would practice. Uh, ritual washing Ritual purification was a very huge part of Judaism during this time in the culture. As a matter of fact, Mark actually talks a little bit about this in his gospel. He says in Mark uh, 7, verses 3 through 4, he says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. Mark says this is a very big deal, and this is not an issue for them of physical hygiene. They're not trying to stop the spread of COVID, okay? They, they wash their hands for another reason. This is an issue of spiritual purity, they want to be holy and clean and pure, just like God, the God that they worship, is holy and clean and pure. And so ritual purification becomes a big part of how they do that. Keep that in mind as we move forward in the story. We'll come back to it. Verse 7, 
Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. So the head waiter is, is basically the kind of MC or the host of the banquet. Um, maybe someone who this is kind of their job in the area or perhaps a close kind of honored family friend. And his job is to oversee, to make sure that the, the banquet is a success, that the food is rationed properly, which means it, it could have partially been his fault that the wine has run out at this point. We don't know. But, but to make sure that people are having a good time, to make sure that things are going smoothly and going well, that's what he is supposed to do and he is blown away by the quality of this wine that he drinks. Calls the groom over and and points out this this very common practice. It was basically almost kind of proverbially known. You put out the best first, and then when everybody has drunk their fill and their palates are no longer kind of sensitive and aware and they're kind of dulled, then you can bring out the cheap wine. No one will know the difference. But he says this phrase, you have saved the fine wine until now. You have saved the best Until last. Verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Now, I want you to notice the word that John uses for the miracle that Jesus just did. Says this, he did this, the first of his signs. In fact, if you read, John will never call the miracles of Jesus miracles. Mighty acts is kind of what they literally are in the Greek. Dunamis, something that's like power is what it means. Powerful acts. He doesn't call them miracles. He always calls them signs. And that's because for John, when he's explaining what Jesus is doing, um, the point of the miracle is never the miracle itself. It's never simply a display of power. The miracles are always a pointer or a revealer of something about Jesus' nature and his character. They are a sign pointing us to something about him for us to be able to get. And that's what he says. He did this sign, and in the process, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So here's the question. What specifically is being revealed about Jesus through this miracle? And why, of all the signs and miracles he could do, why does he make this one the first? Why does he choose of everything that he could do, all the big things, the the first thing he decides to do is not help somebody who's sick, not help someone who's hurting, not some raise the dead or anything like that, but to just provide more wine for a party. It seems kind of uh, small. It seems kind of insignificant. And yet this is how Jesus chooses to introduce his glory to his disciples. Two things will help us know the answer to that. First is knowing the Old Testament background. And the second is recognizing what's going on with those jars. First, the Old Testament background. When the Jewish people thought about the coming kingdom that the Messiah would bring, they were waiting for this long-awaited Messiah to come and make things right. And whenever they would think about his kingdom, they often thought in terms of banquet celebrations. 
And of course, the wedding banquet was one of the biggest and most important ones. And wine was always a big part of those wedding celebration images and ideas. They get this from the prophets themselves. Listen to how some of the prophets talked about the coming kingdom of God, the coming messianic thing. Uh, Amos says this, look. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. Or you see something kind of similar in Isaiah 25 where he says this, On this mountain the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah says there's going to be a day, Isaiah is speaking this in the middle of some very dark times for Israel, but he says there's going to be a day when God is going to come to us and make everything right again. He's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes. He's going to end death and he's going to make everything good. And it's going to be this, like this giant celebration, this giant feast. Wine back then represented at least two things, celebration and peace or life as it should be because it took years to grow and cultivate, build up a good vineyard. Years before you get wine from that. So you can't grow a vineyard in a place where there's violence and unrest. If a vineyard exists somewhere, it means that things are as they should be. It means that it's experienced a long time of peace and prosperity. This is a big deal for them. So the coming Messiah was tied to this abundance of wine and feasting. They were talking about that and thinking about that. And then Jesus comes, and the first thing he does, the first sign, is provide 150 gallons of wine at a feast. And so he's giving them a hint about what has happened with his arrival. He's calling them back to these pictures of the Old Testament prophets, but it's not just that. He does it with Jewish purification vessels. Why is that? The reason why is Jesus is making a statement, I believe, and almost all scholars agree. The reason Jesus uses Jewish purification vessels is to make a statement, which is this. Now that I'm here, you won't be needing these anymore. May as well fill them up with wine and party with them because everything you've been doing to try to make yourself pure and clean and right is now obsolete. I am the one who will make you clean. I am the one who will make you pure. I am the one who will make you right. Actually, the very word that John uses here in John chapter 2 is katharidze, uh, or actually it's katharisman, okay? It's this Greek word, but it's from where we get the word cathartic from, cleansing, Jewish purification and cleansing. He will use that exact same word, the verb form of it, in 1 John 2, and he'll say this, that the blood of Jesus is what purifies us from sin, is what purifies us from all unrighteousness. Righteousness. Not purification rituals, but Jesus and his blood. So this is cool. And I love this idea, and I love the, the way that Jesus is using this, but the question is, what does that have to do with us? 
cool, so we don't have to do ceremonial washing anymore. But, but what does that have to do with my life today? That's what we'll talk about after a short break. All right, so take a minute, stretch, hang out, and then we'll jump back to it. Go any further. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them not who you think will win on Sunday, but who you want to win on Sunday, Chiefs or Bucks or I don't care at all. Okay. All right, let me, uh, let me give you just a little bit of insight into where I'm at with all this. Uh, the Chiefs are favored to win this, okay? Um, and it is in my, like, nature. I am a, like, just huge underdog fan, right? I always cheer for the underdog. It's why I'm a perfect OSU fan and why, that's right, I live in just like, I live in Heartbreak City all the time and so I love it, which, which means I naturally want to cheer against the Chiefs. I want to cheer for the Bucks because I want to cheer for the underdog, but it feels so weird to ever call Tom Brady the underdog, right? And because he's Tom Brady, I've actually spent like his entire career cheering against him, except for his first Super Bowl in 2001 when he was the underdog. But other than that, I've always cheered against Tom Brady, uh, partly because he's done really well, partly because I'm a 49ers fan. And so I always want to say Joe Montana is the greatest of all time. But a lot of people want to make this case that Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. And, And here's the truth. I'm finally actually starting to give in. Uh, there's a good chance that Brady is the greatest player who has ever played football. Okay, 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 all right. Um, (laughs) Tom Brady, listen, is a dude who has it all. Uh, He has won uh, six Super Bowl championships at the top of his game, uh, still at like 42, he's still going to Super Bowls right now. Uh, he is, he's got millions of dollars. His net worth is about $200 million. He's got multiple mansions and homes that he owns in Massachusetts and in Montana. He's got a supermodel wife. He has like everything going for him that anybody could ever, like on the outside, anyone could ever want. And it seems like he has like... He is living the dream that anyone and uh, and everyone might want someday in their life. But there's this really interesting interview that Tom Brady gave back in 2005 on 60 Minutes. Um, And it was after he had won his first three Super Bowl rings. And I had heard about this. It's it's somewhat famous. You may have heard of it. I had heard of it, but I had never actually seen it. And I went and watched it this week and and saw it. I want to show this interview to you real quick and, and just listen to what he talks about, how he experiences and feels after all the success that he has had. I 
I love playing one, I love being a quarterback for this team. And but at the same time I think there's a lot of parts about me that I'm trying to find. And different ways of expression, being around I know what ultimately makes me happy with family and friends. And positive relationships with with great people. And I think I get more out of that than anything. So when we were uh, when we were talking about this beforehand, Jared and I, we weren't totally sure if we could get the video up, but maybe only the audio. But as we were talking, we were like, "Dude, dude you got to have the video because you got to be able to see like the the almost ache in his eyes when he says, "I wish I knew." I wish he almost starts crying there. At least it looks like to me. He starts the, the first couple seconds was cut off. He says, what, "Why is it that I can have three Super Bowl readings and keep thinking that there's something more beyond this?" And he can't, he can't bring himself to answer when he's asked. He says, I wish I knew. The closest he can get is I know that I, it's good for me, that I love, that I feel good when I'm in healthy relationships, when I'm with people I love, which is touching on something that we've told you, that you are made for a relationship. And, and Tom Brady's experiencing that, but the kind of relationships he's talking about only get him about halfway to where he wants to go. But why is it that someone like Brady can have all of these things, can do everything he wants? He'll say, I'm 27, I've accomplished all my dreams, and still go, I wish I knew, but there's got to be something more than this, he says. I think he is actually hitting on the exact same thing that the people of Jesus' day were hitting on when they set out a bunch of Jewish purification jars outside all their wedding celebrations. He's not going to use the same language that they're using. He doesn't know some of the same things they know, but he's hitting on this truth that there is a gap between where I am and where I should be. I don't know what it is, but I know it's there. There is a gap between who I am and who I should be. Something is not quite right. Something is not there, I'm missing something. I'm not quite whole, and I wish I knew what it was. They're actually, he and the Jewish people in the first century are actually saying the same things, just in different ways. Most people, I think all people, if they're honest, if they're willing to sit back and listen to themselves and sit with the quiet long enough, will acknowledge that there is this feeling inside of them, that there is a gap between who I am and what I ought to be. And most people don't know how exactly to span that gap. And so there's been throughout history, I would say four different ways that people have tried to span that gap. And I want to talk with you about those tonight. The first one is this, the traditional way. The traditional bridge, this is what the people of Jesus' day were doing because they knew the specific cause of that gap. The reason there's a gap there, the reason I feel like something's wrong with me, that I'm not who or what I should be, I'm not all that I'm meant to be, is because they knew that God is a holy God, that he is pure in nature, that he is pure and holy in character, and that I'm supposed to be like that too, because he made me in his image, but I'm not. And so the Jewish people recognize this, that there's a gap between where they are and who God is and where they should be with him. And so they had all these different rituals that they went through to try and span that gap. All these cleansing rituals and purification rituals. And a lot of them were actually instituted by God himself in the Old Testament. He gave them rituals like animal sacrifice. And he gave them rituals um, like uh, ritual bathing and, and, and all kinds of different practices that they would go through. 
But if you read through the Bible, especially as you get to the New Testament into books like Hebrews, you'll see the Bible is very clear that none of those rituals were actually given to purify them. They were merely given to be reminders of the lack of purity and holiness in me and to be pointers to something coming in the future that would meet that need, to some, something that was going to come and take care of this thing for me. That's what they were designed to be. But over time, what happened is God's people came to view them not as reminders and not as pointers, but as the thing that makes me right, the thing that makes me good, the thing that spans the gap for me. And then they begin to add on to that. The, the hand washing that's taking place that Mark was describing in chapter 7 and the ritual purification jars that they would have used for hand washing at the wedding, those were never prescribed in the Old Testament. Those were things that got added on later as the people were looking around for more and more things that can mark us as pure and clean and holy, that can make us the kind of people that we are supposed to be. This is what makes me what I ought to be. And this is the traditional way that people have tried to span that gap for most of history. Actually, around the world today, a lot of people still do this. This is why Muslims pray towards Mecca five times a day. This is why uh, people in the Buddhist and Shinto faith will go and visit temples. This is why people in the Bible Belt go to church regularly every week, many of them, because what this tells them is this makes me good enough. This, this uh, spans the gap between the kind of bad person that I know I am and the kind of good person that I know I should be. And if I will do enough of these things, if I'll pray enough, if I'll make enough sacrifices, if I'll be a good enough person and give to the poor, then this will help me and make me what I ought to be. Uh, many today, though, don't actually buy into all that, this idea of sinfulness and wickedness and being separated from God. Um, a lot of people today would, would say that actually... Who, who is your neighbor? Who is your preacher? Who is this book to try and hold you to any sort of standard and make you feel guilty for that? The truth is we're all, we're all good. We all need to kind of follow our own path, and we all have our own standards for how we should live, and you live your truth, and you do you. The problem is, though, that actually even though we try to believe those things and live those things, there's still that voice inside of us that whispers it's not okay. There's still that voice inside of Tom Brady that goes, you're not okay. There's something that you're missing. And so many people go with what I would call the non-traditional way, which is not based in religious and morals necessarily, but in something else. Why is it that we have this constant drive inside of ourselves to prove ourselves to people, to our parents, to ourselves. This is why. Because deep down there is something inside of you that says, I should be more, I can be more, that needs to justify your existence, justify the amount of oxygen that you take up on this planet regularly. And so many people try to do this and span that gap by accomplishing things or by becoming a certain kind of person or by acquiring things or by acquiring relationships, by being successful or by being smart or by being fit or living a certain kind of lifestyle whether that's a lifestyle centered around travel and experiences or a lifestyle that's centered around eating clean and organically or a lifestyle around luxury, something that will kind of give me an identity, give me something that kind of makes me whole. And many of these things are okay. It's okay to be successful. 
It's okay. By the way, I don't know if you noticed that a lot of non-religious people are very, very religious and devout about the time they spend at the gym or are intensely committed to those things. And by the way, it, it is okay to care about being in shape. It's okay to be fit. Listen, I, I don't know those of you guys who weren't here last week, but I actually uh, won an award for being the most fit person in this room, which I know. None of you were surprised. I wasn't either, okay? When they gave me the award, I saw it coming. Uh, but, but so I know of all people, okay, I can't even keep this up anymore. Um, I can pretend to know of all people uh, that it's okay to be fit. It's okay to be successful. It's okay to have a boyfriend. Those are okay and good things, but the problem is that what most of the world is trying to do is take good things and make them ultimate things. They're trying to look to these things, be it a relationship or, um, or my health or the things that I can do or have. They're trying to look to those things to provide identity and fulfillment for me, to make me what I ought to be. And in a universe that God created and where God sits at the center, we have pushed him to the side and said, no, 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 physical fitness will do for me what God was supposed to do for me. It will sit at the center of my life. It will give me purpose. It will make me feel better about myself. And when we do those things, we call that idolatry. To make something else your ultimate reality, make something else give you purpose, it is idolatry. And here's the thing about our idols. They never give what they promise. They will never provide for you what they claim to provide for you. They promise to give you the freedom of the life you've always wanted. And instead, what they end up doing is enslaving you. Both traditional and non-traditional means of trying to span this gap. Whether you're trying to be a good person and follow all the religious rituals, or whether you're trying to have your acts together and be the smartest and top of the class, both of these things always eventually lead to the same basic ideas. Guilt, because I'm not adding up anxiety, that maybe I've got it together for a little bit, but it could fall apart at any time, resentment, because there are other people who are doing this better than me, and envy towards them, or self-superiority as I look down on others who are not quite where I am in this. They all lead to the same thing over and over and over again. They keep promising, though, the reason you don't feel great yet, yes, you're really in shape. Yes, you've, you're finally being successful. But the reason you don't quite feel good yet is because you just need a little bit more of this. Just chase it a little bit longer. Chase it a little bit harder, and then you'll begin to be satisfied finally. This is actually Tom Brady's biggest advantage in life. His biggest advantage is not that he's a great quarterback or that he's got millions of dollars. Tom Brady's biggest advantage in life is that he has accomplished enough to discover that his dreams are going to let him down. And the bummer about where you're at, at your age and stage, and, and actually for a lot of people, is that most of us have not lived long enough to, to see our dreams disappoint us. Most of us have not lived long enough or been successful enough to accomplish all the things we want, and so we still think that when we do it, everything will be right inside of me. But there's this select few like Tom Brady who've been there and know the truth now. That it's not satisfying. And I guarantee you that was in 2005. I guarantee you ask him now and he's, he's not going, now I'm good. It was the three other rings that I needed. Now I feel great. No, I guarantee you that ache is still inside of him. 
And what we fail to see is that what we chase will never, ever satisfy us. And it's into all this madness, this running after things to make ourselves good or right or feel good that God speaks. There's this passage in Isaiah 55 that I love. It says this. This is from the mouth of God. Come, everyone who is thirsty. Come to the water, and you without silver, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? In other words, why do you keep running after these things? Why do you give your life? Why do you give your effort? Why do you give your passion towards these things that you know are not satisfying you? It says, listen carefully to me. And you will eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. And that's where Jesus comes in. And this brings us to the third way, to mind the gap, to span the gap, and that is where Jesus comes in. This is the gospel way where Jesus says, I will provide all of this. You may be out of wine, but I'll bring it. And I'll bring it in abundance. I'll bring more than you ever needed, more than you ever thought possible. And all of your old ways of trying to span the gap are a waste of time, so let's be rid of them. I'll provide your purity. I'll rid you of your shame and of your guilt. I'll give you my joy. I'll bring you to the Father, to the one that you were made for, that you've been wanting. And that offer is there for you if you're willing to take it. If you haven't taken it. If maybe you're new here tonight, maybe your friend tricked you into coming and told you that this was like you know, free food or we're just hanging out or something like that, and now you're mad at them. Uh, if you've not been to that, then, then ask them about that. Ask them what that means, what we're talking about, that Jesus can actually satisfy, that Jesus can provide what you're looking for. They would love to talk to you about that. I would love to talk to you about that tonight. But here's what I want to kind of end with, and this, this, this truth, that there's actually a fourth way. Usually you, you save the best for last, but there is a fourth way, and that is I, I, I'm going to guess that most people in this room actually agree with the gospel way. Most people in this room will actually say, yes, I know that Jesus is the one thing that satisfies. I believe that he is the answer. I believe he makes us right with God. I believe he spans the gap for me and satisfies my deepest needs. But I also really need my girlfriend. And if she ever breaks up with me, that my world will come undone. Or I also really need success. And if I don't get into the school I want, then life is over. We call this fourth way Jesus plus. That it's Jesus that makes me right. But I really hope that I don't lose this thing. Jesus that makes me right. But, but I'm going to put a lot of my effort towards this because, because Jesus mostly gets me there. But this and Jesus is what really gives me satisfaction in my life. And for as long as Christianity and the gospel have existed, this temptation has been there. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. Is a group of people who, who were coming to these new Christians and telling them, yeah, 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 you've heard the gospel. That's great. Believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus. But what you also need to do, if you really want to span the gap and be right with God, is make sure you obey all the law as well. Is practice Jewish circumcision. Practice all the dietary restrictions. It's Jesus plus that, and you're great. Or that's why the book of Colossians was written. Because people were coming and saying, yes, Jesus is great. Worship Jesus. He's awesome. But there's these secret uh, truths. There's this secret knowledge that just kind of a select few of us know. 
and you, you really kind of need to know that stuff too. So, so come on over here, come to our side, and we'll let you in on like the extra stuff that you need. And both Galatians and Colossians and so many other books were written to say, never. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who will be enough for you, who will satisfy you. Those other things might be good. It might be good to have relationships. It might be good to have success, but we never pin our hopes on them. We never pin our identity on those things because Christ and only Christ will satisfy. And when we try to put him with something else, something's going to have to win out. Paul was a guy who got good things. Paul was this really great uh, Jewish man who, we talked about him last semester, who wrote Ephesians, who, who had all these benefits in his pedigree, all these things that he had done well and he was proud of, and, and things that weren't even bad things. But he talks about those in Philippians 3, and he says this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things, even the good things, lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. I will not let plus anything trip me up from having what I most need and what I most want in my life, which is Jesus alone. I will celebrate good food. I will celebrate good relationships. I will work hard for success, but I will base none of my identity, none of my satisfaction, none of who I am or my hopes on those things, but only in Jesus. So how do we respond to a truth like that? Well, it depends on where you are. It depends on if you've ever actually placed your faith or trust in Jesus. It depends on if you've done that, but you've started to turn back towards other things or whether you've started to add things onto those. And so here's what we want to do. We want to give you a minute to sort it out, a, a moment between you and the Holy Spirit to sort through some of these things. And so we're going to put some reflection questions up on the screen and just give you a moment uh, to pray over and reflect on some of these things, to think through some of these and ask what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you through them. And then we'll close out. Take a moment with those.